Let's turn together in our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah, as we saw as we began our study last time, we're told was a cupbearer to the king, King Artaxerxes, who was reigning over the Medo-Persian Empire at this time. And Nehemiah was serving there in this prominent position as a cupbearer. As we talked about last time, the cupbearer was someone who was in constant contact with the king, the individual who was selected by the king to test their food, their wine, to make sure that was safe before they partook of it and understandable how that would be a helpful thing to a high-reigning authority. Many people with evil intention may want to assassinate the king or to come up with some plan to do something to harm the king. So having a cupbearer, someone who could look out for your own interests and be there and actually would sample the food before you would partake of it. This was the role of Nehemiah. So also, as we said, too, a role that became a very prominent thing wasn't just like a butler. He also was a close advisor to the king, aware of the affairs of the throne and what was going on among the empire. Typically, the cupbearer culturally became someone who was a very trusted advisor to the king that king would share things with and would receive feedback in regards to uh, what the cupbearer perhaps may advise, things he was aware that were going on in the empire and just sort of a sounding board. But Nehemiah in kind of this prominent position, very comfortable life. He's got a government job, if you would. He's well taken care of, living in the palace. And we're told that it came to pass in the 20th year as Nehemiah was there in Shushan the Citadel, the Winter Palace, that Hananiah came with some men from Judah and Nehemiah being concerned regarding how the people were faring back in Jerusalem, how they were doing since they had returned. It had been about a hundred years since the Jews had been allowed to go back to their homeland to restore and rebuild the temple. And Nehemiah asked an inquiry of Hananiah coming from that area, how those people in that area were doing. He had a a concern for them. He was a compassionate man. And as he gets word, he doesn't hear the best of news. Remember, we were told in chapter one last time that he hears that the survivors that were there in the area of Judah and Jerusalem were in distress and great reproach and that the walls at this point still had not been rebuilt and restored. The temple was back up, but the walls were still broken down. The gates still burned with fire. Things were in disrepair. So The people in the area were in great distress. They were going through a very difficult time. There was tremendous hardship going on in the area of Jerusalem. And as Nehemiah hears about this, his heart is greatly burdened. He's filled with tremendous concern. Compassion arises within his heart. It says he sat down as he's grieving. He began to weep and even started to fast and pray and seek the Lord, and we're told that for about a four-month span, actually, he continued to pray and seek God, and this burden in his heart became a burden of prayer as he continually sought the Lord about the help the people needed, about the dire conditions that things were in there in Jerusalem, and if there was some way that he could do something, no doubt, to help, to participate in the situation they were in. As we said last time, it's a very sort of difficult situation when a city, especially in an ancient culture, did not have walls. It made them very vulnerable. They could easily be attacked and overcome. And if they had anything precious within the city, as the temple was rebuilt and they were worshiping, 
They had no boundaries to protect themselves, and they were very vulnerable to enemy attack and coming in and destroying what was good inside. So he realized this was a very difficult situation, something that was dangerous for the people. They were in a condition where they were devastated. And again, as oftentimes we at some time may hear about a situation that we cause ourselves as we hear about it to then become greatly concerned. We have a burden for wanting to do something. And Nehemiah here, as we saw last time, spends a good four months in prayer as we now come to chapter two this evening. And after praying and lifting this before the Lord for a season of time, asking God to work in that situation and if there was something he could do, realizing he would need to be released from his position, have permission to go, we come to chapter 2 now, and it tells us that it came to pass in the month of Nizan. Again, that would be around the Aprilish time frame, a four-month time span that characterizes from when Nehemiah first heard about this news and began praying and seeking God in intercession. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, so we're at 445 B.C., and that's important to keep that date in mind because uh, though we're not in Daniel right now, Daniel chapter 9 records that there was a specified time of prophecy in which Messiah would come, and it directly connects to the command to allow the people of God to go back and restore and rebuild the walls and the city of Jerusalem. And it refers to this particular opportunity where Nehemiah goes back in 445 BC. And when we get to Daniel 9, we'll talk about that a little bit more, but that's why this date is important here in connection to that. So it's 445 BC. It says that when wine was before the king, that I took the wine and I gave it to the king. Nehemiah says, verse one, now I had never been sad or downcast, the idea, in his presence before. Therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became, Nehemiah says, verse two, dreadfully afraid. So take notice, Nehemiah now begins to record that after praying and seeking God, what was on his heart, this burden now begins to be birthed into a circumstantial open door. And that's what chapter two is beginning to record for us now, that after a time of being burdened in heart and taking that burden to pray and to seek God, it's after that season of prayer that now God births the opportunity, the open door in the right timing. And this is always necessary. You need the right time with the right person and the right place. And when those things converge together, the plan of God begins to unfold. And Nehemiah was the right man. This was now the right time. And this was now the right place, the right circumstance that was necessary to come to pass. And he says that as he was in the king's presence, the king took notice that he seemed to be sad or downcast. And this caused the king to inquire, what seems to be a matter? He asked Nehemiah, you certainly aren't sick, so why are you sad? Now understand, a king many times would be prone to be suspicious as he would take notice of the mood of those around him. He always kind of lived in constant suspicion, and now the man who's testing his food and wine has never been sad or downcast before, and he's wondering, is there something going on? Is there something that Nehemiah is troubled about? Is he aware of something? I know he's not ill. What's the reason for this downcast mood? And he asked them, this seems to be nothing but sorrow of heart. What's going on, Nehemiah? He's kind of inquiring. And notice verse 2 says that Nehemiah 
became dreadfully afraid when the king identified his sadness, the heaviness of his heart. The reason Nehemiah becomes dreadfully afraid was, understandably, it wasn't very favorable to be in a bad mood or a sad mood in the presence of the king, of the emperor. Uh, You kind of kept your personal feelings to yourself. You weren't to bring down the mood of the king. You could lose your head even for doing something like that. As well as the fact, as I said, it it caused the king to become instantly suspicious and to wonder if in some ways you or some others had some plot to do something that wasn't good. So uh, this was something that troubled Nehemiah. It caused him to be dreadfully afraid because he realized, oh my goodness, the king may instantly lash out in anger. He was fearful of what the response would be. And verse 3, as he's asked, Nehemiah then responds to the king, may the king live forever. In other words, king... You have nothing to worry about. I want you to live forever. I'm enjoying serving you. I have no intention to harm you. There's nothing going on that's shady here in the midst of my sad mood. May you live forever. Don't worry about anything, he says. Why should my face, he says, not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Nehemiah doesn't identify right away. He's talking specifically about the city of Jerusalem, but he does honestly convey to the king, I'm deeply burdened about a situation that my heart is greatly concerned about. He says, the city of my fathers, my ancestral city, he says, it's in a waste-like condition. It's destroyed. People there are suffering greatly. Its walls are broken down. Its gates are burned with fire. And he says, I've got this burden of concern upon my heart for this city in its suffering condition. And things are destroyed and devastated. And it's grieving me. And that grief is causing my heart to be so burdened because I'm just at unrest until I see something happen to begin to help them or to assist them in some way. And verse 4 says, the king then said to me, what do you request? Now, you can tell a door is starting to open now at this point because the king of the Medo-Persian Empire has just now said to Nehemiah, okay, you seem to have something on your heart. You seem burdened and concerned to want to do something. What is it you're wanting to do? Uh, Are you looking for the freedom to be able to engage somehow or to assist? He's saying, Uh, Get to the point, Nehemiah. It seems to me there's something that you're looking to ask or maybe you're desiring to do. What do you request? And the next statement says, the end of verse 4, Nehemiah says, So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now notice, Nehemiah, again, we see this, is such a man that is characterized by resorting to prayer very quickly. We saw in chapter 1 how he spent months in prayer continuously. It says day and night he constantly kept interceding and praying, talking to God about his concern, asking God for wisdom and if there was something God would have him do and what that would look like and what the plan may be and that God would no doubt open a door as he serves this king and he can't just pack up his bags and leave. He's under the authority of the king He needs to be given freedom because of the authority over his life to be able to go and to do something like that. He realizes a lot of pieces would have to come together for him to have the opportunity to go and to serve in some way with the thing that was upon his heart. 
And now as he's asked, the door is opening. He realizes, oh my goodness, something is starting to happen here. The king has just said to me as he's discovered my burden for Jerusalem, what do you want, Nehemiah? What are you requesting? Why is it that you're bringing this up and allowing me to be aware of this? And before Nehemiah answers the question, he says, I prayed to the God of heaven. Again, we see him turning to prayer looking to God, asking for God's help and direction. And verse 5 says, and then I said to the king. So you take notice, this was a very brief prayer. This is not a situation where Nehemiah put his hand up to the king and said, "Uh, boss, can you give me just a few minutes here? I I need to pause and pray and talk to God and bowed his head or walked away and spent some time in prayer and came back. This is right in the midst of a conversation. And again, you're standing before the throne of a king. Uh, being reverent, being respectful, not wasting the time of the king was of utmost importance. So you know this prayer had to be extremely brief. It was just a quick prayer that he shot up quietly to the Lord, to the true king who was upon the throne, because he realized it was the greater throne, God's throne, the throne of heaven, that ultimately was going to determine what did or didn't happen in the midst of this situation on earth and to respect the authority of the earthly throne of the king in which he served. So he lifts up a word of prayer to the Lord before he answers a question. Again, what a great reminder here in regards to the dynamics of prayer. Is there a time to to spend long durations in prayer? Absolutely. Is there occasions where we pray together collectively with other people? Absolutely. But the Bible says that we're to pray continually. That is, we're to sort of just live in a spirit of prayer, day and night. And this is kind of a a picture here in some ways of what we see Nehemiah doing here in the midst of a conversation that says he prayed to the God of heaven before he answered someone's question because he wanted to make sure he answered it well. He wanted to make sure that he had the right answer and was able to be respectful and that he did not miss this opportunity that was being set before him. I think he realized this is a a special moment here. This is a unique window of time. I don't want to blow this, God. I don't want to make a mistake here. This is a great opportunity. But I really admire how Nehemiah shows this wisdom that he realizes that short prayers can be just as effective as lengthy prayers. Prayer's effectiveness is not measured by the duration of how long we pray or how much we say, but it's the sincerity of our heart. It's the honesty of our communication. It's the attitude condition of our heart that God honors. And Nehemiah here probably just, we're not told, prayed something very simply like, Lord, please help me to answer the best that I can. Lord, give me wisdom, maybe he said, how to put together my words here. Lord, help. Maybe he said something like that. Lord, give me wisdom. Just a few words. He probably just quietly in his mind without closing his eyes or having to open his mouth out loud, he just uttered in communication to God there in heaven before he answered. And this is just really great wisdom for all of us in regards to our personal lives. I think we might have a lot better at times conversations with people And maybe at times not err in our words or how we answer questions or what we say that maybe we shouldn't have said if we learn to implement prayer even in the midst of our conversations. 
that if somebody asks us a question or someone says something, that at times we would be praying even in the midst of conversations. As we're having a conversation with a person, we'd also be having a conversation with God at the same time. Lord, give me wisdom as I answer that question the person just asked me. Lord, help me to be sensitive and wise and to speak in a way that would be effective here. Again, the Bible tells us that in the multitude of words, sin is not absent. Sometimes we just start talking, and then we end up saying things that are just unwise or hurtful or just cause things to go in a bad direction in a conversation. And how much more when we're talking to someone who's an authority over us, someone who genuinely has authority. This was Nehemiah's king. It was Nehemiah's supervisor, his boss. He wants to make sure he answers in a right attitude and uses the right words. What great wisdom to be able to do that. I'll tell you, I implement this many, many times in my life, whether it's at times having a conversation with somebody. As a pastor, of course, people ask me, questions, they have things going on in their life, whether it's in a one-on-one conversation personally, whether it's in a phone conversation. I quite often find myself as somebody's saying things and I'm listening initially, praying, Lord, give me wisdom here. Lord, help me to know what to say. Lord, fill me with what would be the right way to respond to this situation. So often in counseling situations, I'm praying right in the midst of counseling situations before I talk to people. So again, just a valuable, valuable insight here from the Holy Spirit and the Word of God as Nehemiah handles this. He prays to the God of heaven as he's asked a question, and after he prays, he then answers the question. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, notice the submissive attitude, if it pleases you, king, because you are an authority over me and I respect your authority in that role, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. So there he puts forth the honest thing that's upon his heart in a request, and he says, King, I have a heart, honestly, to go and rebuild the city there in Judah. And so I'm asking, If it would be within your grace and your permission to allow me to do this, he's not saying, I'm going to do this. If it pleases you, and and if you would grant me favor, because ultimately I believe, in a sense, Nehemiah is conveying, I believe in his own heart he's thinking, if this is of God, then he will give the person who's in authority over me grace and favor to permit me to do this. Nehemiah shows wonderful wisdom, even as a leader, and we've talked about how he's a great example of leadership in the Bible. He understands the dynamic of authority. And when God-given authority exists, that we don't have to resist authority. He didn't get hyper-spiritual. Well, God's leading me to do this, so whether you like it or not, I'm going. There was none of this kind of attitude. There was a faith in the greater authority of God being in control and ruling over all things, to believe, as he's been praying for four months, that God, if you are in this, then you will bring all the pieces together. You will give people favor in their hearts towards me. You will open the right doors. You will give me an opportunity. And Lord, you will even allow that king whom I serve, that it's a pagan king that doesn't even know you, you will even allow that king to say yes to me and to grant me my request and to give me the freedom to be released from my position and to be able to go and do this. And Nehemiah is a great man of faith, 
believe that, and because he was a man of faith and a man of prayer, believing that God works, he didn't strive. He didn't strive in the flesh. He wasn't forcing something to come to pass. He wasn't trying to strong arm the king or be rebellious even in his attitude. He fully in submission believes through his submission to authority that God would ultimately bring to pass what his purposes were and that if it's of God, God would open the doors and move on the heart of the king. Again, the Bible tells us in Proverbs that God has the heart of kings in his hand and he can turn them whatever way he wishes. And Nehemiah apparently believed that because his words convey that if it pleases you, king, I'm asking, would you send me to Judah, to the city of my fathers, that I may rebuild it? Verse 6, and then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I set him a time. So the Lord obviously was in this because very quickly after Nehemiah presents his desire, the king asks a few simple questions, recognizing the value of Nehemiah as a probably a good employee, a great servant there by his side. He doesn't want Nehemiah to be lost completely, just like any supervisor. Good employees are hard to find, and they don't want to lose that employee. So he says, look, I'm willing to send you, Nehemiah, but how long is this going to be? We'd we like you to come back. We appreciate what you do here. So the king says, how long is this journey going to take? And, and when will you return? We want you to come back. And it pleased, it says, verse six, the king to send Nehemiah. So Nehemiah set him a time, gave him some time frame. Now, a couple things we see here. One, it becomes very obvious in the midst of this that Nehemiah already had a plan in his mind and he had thought this through as he had been praying believing that if and when God did open the door, that he needed to be ready with a plan. He was a man who sort of planned his work, and then he worked his plan. He planned his work, and then he worked his plan. And as he had been praying, he had been thinking through, Lord, if you open the door, what might I do? And so as he's praying, God's given him vision and giving him ideas and a plan sort of coming together in his mind. As we'll see that vision unfold, his action starts to take place, but he was ready so that then when the door opened and the king said, okay, I'll grant you access to go, I will send you. He wasn't at that point saying, uh, uh, well, uh, can I have some time to think about that? And let me think through. He was ready with a response because he had thought this through well, he had a plan, he kind of had the vision written, if you would, if not written down, written in his mind, it was written on his heart, so that when the king asked, he was able to lay out his plan, he was able to give him a set time, and he was able to move in this situation. And I think a great reminder, again, of just being able to serve the Lord, using good stewardship in our lives, and as situations arise, as we have desires to do things, or opportunities come to pass as well as just from a leadership perspective, it's wise to plan. It's wise as we're praying to ask God for the plan and let God help us to plan out what it is that we want to do and have a plan ready so that then if God does open the door, he blesses and indicates, yes, that is of me, we are ready to work the plan that God has given to us and to put it into action. So Nehemiah was able to set a time for the king and the king sent him forth. Verse 7, Nehemiah, in the midst of this, again, 
further indication of having a plan here. Furthermore, he says, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, again, notice the attitude of heart, if it pleases the king, let also letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. So he realized this would also be helpful, that he would need access, and that as he tra uh, traveled through those areas, if he had letters of authority from the, the throne, uh, from the king there, that it would give him ease of access and they would permit him to pass through without troubling him. It would give him an opportunity to be able to move forward without hindrances. And again, he had wisely thought about these things. Verse 8, we see more of his wisdom and planning. And also he says, King, would you give me a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest? So apparently he knew that or he had researched this a little bit. Maybe he had done some homework so that his plan was prepared. He knew who the letter needed to be addressed to, to Asaph. He was the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall and for the house that I also will occupy. So Nehemiah just lays out his plan here. He realizes, Lord, if I'm going to do this, I need you to give me wisdom how to go about this. And God gives him wisdom, gives him ideas, gives him a plan, if you would, so that then when the king asks him and he has the opportunity, he's able to lay out his plan. King, this is exactly how long I expect that it's going to take me to travel there, to do the project, when I'll be able to come back and report back here to work for you once again. And I'm also asking that you would give to me letters that I might have access to be permitted to travel through the territories that I would go through without being hindered, that I can get to Judah. And as well, I'm going to need some level of supply. I'm going to need your help with provision. I'm asking that you would give me a letter of authority to Asaph, the keeper of the forest that you are in control of, that he would supply me timber and beams so that I can build myself a shelter to dwell in while I'm doing some of these things there. And that we can also have construction materials to assemble the wall. So wisely he had thought through all this, and it's kind of an interesting insight to take note of as well. He basically asked the, the king for a few things. He asked the king for permission to go, that he might be sent. He asked the king as well that he would receive protection, that no harm would come to him, that he wouldn't be hindered. And he also asked the king for provision that he would be supplied with what he would need to be able to do the work that God had put upon his heart and that he believed that God wanted him to do as his servant and ambassador in this situation. And these are things that, as Nehemiah asked this from the earthly king, that, that we want whenever we're going to step out to do something for God too. Lord, we want you to send us like the king was sending Nehemiah. We ask that you would, Lord, permit us and, and be the one to send us, authorized by you, by your throne. Again, remember the Bible tells us that Isaiah said, here am I, Lord, send me. Lord, I don't want to just go. I, I, I want, if you want to use me, if you intend for me to do this, then send me. I want to know that you sent me with authority from your throne, that you're the one giving me permission, and that your favor's upon me, that you have indeed selected me, and that I am the right guy to do this. Because many people could have gone back and built the wall. But again, Nehemiah wasn't just doing the right thing. It wasn't just the right time, and it wasn't just the right place. He also was the right 
individual. And again, this is important because you can want to do the right thing and you can seek to do it at the right time. But if you're not the right person, then things aren't going to come to pass in the same way. You could be the right person and maybe you want to do the right thing, but maybe it's not the right time. And so therefore things don't come to pass. Again, these things need to all come together in a perfect cooperation for God's plan to unfold. So he says, I'm asking you, king, send me. And, and we want our king to send us. We want like uh, Saul and, and Barnabas. It says Paul and Barnabas that, that they, the church prayed for them, Acts 13, and they were sent out by the Holy Spirit, sent out by God's throne. And also we too want to ask God, if you're going to send me into doing something, if you're going to send me to a situation where there's devastation and destruction and danger and difficulty and people are in dire straits, then, Lord, I need you to protect me. Please preserve me. And I'm asking as well, Lord, that you'd provide. If I'm going to leave this situation and step into that situation, it's going to put me at risk, and I'm going to need your supply and your provision. God, if you're sending me, then, then I'm asking that you would provide. And God does want to do that. Where God guides, he provides. And as Nehemiah steps into this, all of these pieces come together, and we can see that. Look at the end of verse 8. It says, And the king granted these things to me, according to the good hand of my God upon me. So Nehemiah says, I knew this was God. I knew the hand of God was upon this, that God's hand was helping bring this to pass because the king granted me everything I asked. Permission to go when I set him the time. He sent me out with his favor and blessing. He gave to me the letters I needed to have access and the open door to travel through the areas I needed to. And he even gave me favor to give me letters to make sure I was supplied with the materials that I would need and the provision necessary to carry out his work. And he says, the king granted these things to me. And he recognized it wasn't just the king liked me or was being nice. He recognized it was the good hand of God that was upon his life that brought these things to pass, that it was God who was opening the door. It was God who was sending him and giving him the favor of God to be able to do these things. And, and that's what we want. We want to know that God's in something and be able to confirm that circumstantially. You know, things often to start with a desire and God gives us a desire and God gives us a burden, but then we want that desire and burden or vision we have to ultimately be something that intersects where we see an open door come to pass. Uh, and then we know, okay, this is the Lord because now circumstantial things are sort of lining up with the desires and the burden and ideas that may be in our heart in regards to stepping into something we do. Those, those things are, are, are essential to come together like that. I think of how when the Lord directed us to ultimately leave Calvary Chapel of York where we had been pastoring there and to come to this area here and to start a new work, to turn the church over and plant a brand new church. All of that began initially with just a desire. It began with some burdens and things that were going on in my mind and in my heart. And as I was praying and ideas would come onto my heart or impressions uh, would come upon me. And, and I was just praying and praying and, and seeking the Lord. And then, of course, talking to my wife about it and praying together. And we kind of got to a point where ultimately we said, okay, Lord, if this really is something of you, then we're asking that you'd clearly open a circumstantial door, that you would make it very evident, that you would do something very, very obvious, bring together some circumstances that clearly identify with an open door that match the desires with circumstances 
And as we began to pray that, it was not too long after that, actually, where uh, Pastor Joe Foch and some of the other Calvary Chapel pastors in this area actually reached out to me and asked to have a meeting. And I, I met together with Joe and uh, Don McClure and Jerry Paradise and a couple of others talked to as well, and they actually directly asked if I would be willing to start a Bible study down in the South Jersey area and had mentioned uh, some things that were on their heart, and they were aware I was coming down here periodically doing some ministry and outreach and kind of said, look, it seems like that you would be the right guy to do this, and, and, and are you willing? And at that moment, as I was driving back home, I called my wife, and we knew that that was the Lord confirming because now circumstantial things, clear open doors were coming to pass as they were actually not only encouraging but actually asking asking us to start an outreach Bible study down in this area. And we then felt what a great sense of confidence. This is the hand of the Lord. This is the good hand of the Lord opening a door, bringing things together to match our desire and to give us a sense of confidence to step into that because we knew it was the hand of God at work in that situation then. So verse 9 goes on by telling us after this dialogue between Nehemiah and the king that Nehemiah says, verse 9, then I went. Now, I know that's only three words there, but let me stop there. Then I went. Notice, a time of action ultimately has to come. Nehemiah has prayed. He's planned things out. He's thought things through. The door has now opened, but he has to step through the door in an act of faith and obedience. And sometimes that's a hard part in the process, too. There's a time to pray. There's a time to wait. There's a time to plan. But then there comes a time where you, you got to act. You got to step forth in obedience. You got to engage when the opportunity comes. You got to capitalize on the opportunity if God sets it before you. you know, sometimes an opportunity may be set before us and we don't step into it. We don't capitalize. And it takes that step of faith and obedience to ultimately do and get moving with the thing that God's asking us to do in such a situation. So Nehemiah, again, only three words, but I don't think it should be overlooked. I have it circled in my Bible here, then I went. Ultimately, you got to step in and actually obey and act and take that venture of faith and whatever it may be that God's directing you to do if he's opening up a door. Verse 9, then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river, gave them the king's letters, now, the king, it says, had also sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. So a protective military accompaniment went along with him to make sure that he got there safely in that long journey from the area where he was. Again, about a 900-mile journey going from where he was to Jerusalem. And as he arrives, the army's there to make sure he gets there safely. And again, just when we're obeying what God's leading us to do, it's wonderful how God has ways to protect and preserve and keep us. And again, here, this earthly army was dispatched, these captains and horsemen to travel with Nehemiah and those who went with him. Verse 10, however, says, When Samuel at the Harnite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. So take notice, now we begin to see opposition starting to happen. And this is always going to be a part in God's work. This is always going to be a part in any time when we're following God's plan in some way for our lives, whether it's something God's asking us to do, whether it's some work that we're trying to undertake to serve the Lord, to serve people, to fulfill God's purposes. 
in ministry, whatever it may be, there is always going to be opposition. This is just a part of the process. We have to recognize this and not be naive. And here, somehow word got out to some of the local officials in the area, Sanballat and Tobiah, the Ammonite, and these our individuals will see become continuous enemies. We'll see in the book of Nehemiah. This isn't the first wave of opposition, and it won't be the last. Uh, and here they it says, as they hear that Nehemiah has come to the area, and they're aware to some degree that he has a heart to rebuild the walls and to help the people of God, it says there, verse 10, that they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Isn't it very interesting to see how the enemies of God were deeply disturbed when someone had a heart to do something that was good for God's people? When they heard that Nehemiah was interested not in his own well-being or doing good things for himself, but he was interested in the welfare of God's people, that he wanted the well-being of what was best for the people of God, those who were struggling, who needed some assistance in their lives. When the enemy heard that, they were deeply disturbed. They were angry that people wanted to come and actually help God's people. Uh, to me, this is interesting in two ways. First of all, notice they were deeply disturbed because a man wanted to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. That's not overlooked that. That's the Jews. This anti-Semitic spirit and attitude that existed and this will always be something that exists, it seems, throughout human history where the devil despises and hates the people of Israel, the Jewish people. When some man, whether it be an individual in the smallest way or whether it be someone who's a national leader, seeks the well-being of the children of Israel, it is going to bring People who are greatly disturbed by that because of anti-Semitism, hatred for the Jews, hatred for God's people, his chosen people, Israel. And we see that at times when someone wants to do what's good for Israel, they draw great hatred and opposition. It deeply disturbs people simply because of that. And the same is true in any sense, just in a spiritual way. Our enemy is always going to be deeply disturbed when we want to do something good for people. If you want to help people whether it's a struggling marriage or uh, an individual who's fallen into sin or maybe you have a heart to minister to a group of people in some way, you want to step out and help in some way and do what's best to assist people or you actually care about seeking the well-being of other people, you can be assured that's going to deeply disturb the enemy, the devil. He's going to be in opposition to that. It will anger him because he wants to rob, kill, and destroy lives. He wants to ruin lives, and if you want to seek the well-being of people, that completely contradicts everything that he's trying to do, and so he's going to be deeply disturbed if you have a heart to do such things. We have to be aware of that. So verse 11, Nehemiah says, So I came to Jerusalem and was there for three days. So as Nehemiah arrives, it seems he kind of takes a respite for a three-day period, probably to rest physically. It had been a long journey. Maybe they just kind of recoup a little bit. Mentally and emotionally, he'd been through a journey and a difficult season. So he kind of just takes a pause, a waiting period to rest a little bit, to get his bearings about him, to let his body rest up a little bit. Again, just good wisdom. There's a time to be active. There's also a time to just pause and wait a little bit. Again, he just takes a few days and gets himself ready when he first arrives. And, you know, it's not always action, action, action. Sometimes 
taken some time to wait before we do something. The Bible says those who wait on the Lord renew their strength. And so he takes three days. And then after three days, he says, verse 12, I arose in the night and a few men with me. And I told no one what God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate. These were territories on the wall around Jerusalem. And I viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates, which were burned with fire. So Nehemiah, it seems somewhere in the evening hours, probably under the benefit of darkness, so we wouldn't be recognized in, in broad daylight and people would draw attention to what he was doing or whatever. He has a heart to kind of just want to go out and survey the territory. He's arrived now in Jerusalem. He wants to kind of survey the situation, get a better bearing on exactly what it is. He's never even seen the damage and the devastation. He's only heard about things, but now he's there and he wants to get a good pulse on what's going on. And again, the great wisdom of Nehemiah here, he arises and he realizes, you know what? It would be good before I do anything to just take a little bit of time and to survey the situation to kind of get my bearings of exactly what is going on, what isn't going on, understand the genuine conditions, not what was told to me, or but getting a true sense himself of what the real conditions are, what the situation is. There's great wisdom in that. Taking time to survey a situation, to get your bearings, to really understand what is or isn't going on in a situation before you just jump in and start to act or start trying to do things. You'll be a much more effective helper and servant in a situation if you actually understand what's the best approach, what does need to be done, how to go about it. And this is what Nehemiah is doing. He gets up at night and he goes out and he surveys the situation. One man has said before, Nehemiah is a good picture of a servant and a, and a great leader because it says in, his, in one of the commentaries I read, he made reference to how while others were sleeping, Nehemiah was out working and making those sacrifices. He's up at night. He's out surveying the walls, taking a look in regards to what's going on out there. I find it interesting, too, verse 12, Nehemiah tells us there, he says, at this point, I had told no one what God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. So notice, there were things that God had put in his heart. I just, I love the language there. I told no one what God had put in my heart to do in Jerusalem. God had put things in Nehemiah's heart to do at Jerusalem. And this is what God does. The Bible says that God can write his will on the fleshly tablet of our heart. Uh, that God gives us desires. He puts impressions. He tells us things that he wants us to do sometimes and Nehemiah acknowledges this. He says, God had put things on my heart. And God will do that for you and I. Sometimes God will put something on your heart that he wants you to do in a situation. And God puts those things on your heart. But notice, he says, at this point, I didn't tell anyone what God put on my heart. Just because God tells us something or puts something on our heart, it doesn't automatically mean that we need to tell other people about it or that we have to share it with others right away. In fact, sometimes it's beneficial to just keep those things between you and God for a period of time, to maybe pray them through, to process them, to, to have a little more clarity, to make sure what God has put on your heart, because sometimes we start talking to people, and then they, oh, well, that's not going to work, or we've tried something like that before. Or, you know, sometimes even 
as God's people, we can be the biggest critics of things and throw cold water on the desires that somebody has. And maybe God's genuinely told them to do something and we say things and ends up discouraging them or making them question. So Nehemiah just kind of kept this to himself for a time. He realized it's not the right time to, to share this yet. God had put things on his heart, but he says at this point, I hadn't told anybody about it. Hadn't shared those things, just kind of kept it between me and my and my God at this point in time. He's walking around, Lord, I know what you put on my heart to do here. Let me see what's going on. And he's just kind of surveying, it says, viewing the walls of Jerusalem in their broken down condition, gates burned with fire. And again, they're just very symbolic in some ways as we think about what we see sometimes in the conditions of maybe a community where just the walls broken down, just burnt up and ravaged and ruined lives. Or maybe a family, we see just things have been devastated or a marriage. And again, kind of getting a sense of what the conditions are before we just engage in trying to do something. So Nehemiah is out looking around, verse 14, he goes on to say, And then I went on to the fountain gate and then to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So there was so much rubble. He was having trouble traveling while sitting on the animal still. So I went up in the night by the valley, and I viewed the wall. Again, took a survey of the situation, it says. Viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered the valley gate, and so returned. Verse 16, And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, nor the priests, the nobles, or the officials, or the others who did the work. So Nehemiah at this point not only didn't share with his traveling companions what God had put in his heart to do, the vision, the ideas that he had, nor had he told the people there in Jerusalem when he arrived, the priests, the nobles. It wasn't in his heart and mind the right timing yet. He first wanted to get a little better bearing, understand things. And at this point, now that he has a little better bearing, verse 17 says, Then I said to them, the indication there is timing, waiting for God's timing. It's not just doing the right thing. It's often going about it as well the right way. And God has, we see all throughout the Bible, appointed times. We don't want to get ahead of the Lord. We don't want to be behind the Lord. We want to stay in step with the Lord and do things at the right timing. And Nehemiah knew in his heart and mind, I have to wait until the right timing to share these things with people. Wanted to wait maybe till God got their hearts ready. God had had his heart ready, but he wasn't certain yet if the people's heart were ready to hear these things. And so he waits for the right timing. And now verse 17, he's discerned, okay, it's now the right time. So verse 17, he now communicates what his vision is. He says, verse 17, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. So he then gives them his exhortation now. Come, he says, with an invite, let us, notice, he realizes he needs to work in partnership with others. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the good hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So at this point, Nehemiah, recognizing it was the right time, he communicates his vision to the people. He shares what's on his heart. Listen, our city is in a reproach here. This situation 
It's a dishonor to God. That's the idea. God's reputation is being diminished by this. We serve a glorious and an awesome God. It's a shame that we're in this condition where the walls are broken down and the gates are burned with fire. It's going to be the same way that if a church was in a sad or an unhealthy condition, this shouldn't be the state of the church. We, we should be healthy and strong for God's honor and God's glory. And Nehemiah says this is a reproach to God, the conditions that Jerusalem is in here. And he says to them, look, we need to we need to step forward in faith and trust in God and obedience. And, and God's given me a vision. And he says to them, would you join me in that vision? God's given me ideas. He says, I believe he wants us to rebuild these walls. And he says there, verse 17, come. He now exhorts them and extends an invitation to join him. Let us, he says, build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. Notice, as I said, Nehemiah recognized that one person can't do God's work alone. God works in partnerships. The Bible tells us even two are better than one for they get a good return for the work. And more than two, many. When you have a group of people who come together and their greatest concern is the glory of God and doing what God wants done, something very wonderful can happen. But again, a wise leader and an effective servant realizes, I need other people to help me in the process. I can't do everything. And I can't even do everything as good as other people can do things. And again, Nehemiah is a cupbearer. He's not an architect. He's not a guy with construction skills. He went there to build a wall. He doesn't have any background in any of these kind of things. No expertise. He realizes, look, come, let us do this. There are some who know how to do things with construction. There are some that are good masons. There are others maybe who can draw diagrams, others who can assist people who are working during the construction process in other ways. He says, look, this is an us thing. It's not a me thing. Let us come together as God's people serving in unison. Let us, he says, build. Let's build and do God's work. And again, we want to build the church. We want to build the kingdom of God. This is a, a challenge to all of us as well as God's people that we would come together and fulfill the vision that God may bring through a leader, but that we accomplish by working together, each one willing to, to build, if you would, to do their part. And we'll see that happen in chapter three as they start the work and they're all working in different locations. And Nehemiah also encourages them. He says, look, I know God's in this. He testifies, verse 18, the good hand of God has, has been upon me. I can give evidence. And he no doubt shared what happened as he prayed for the months in the past and how the king had granted him permission to go and provision and protection. And he's kind of sharing the testimony of God's faithfulness. He's saying, look, God's in this. I can tell you, I know the hand of the Lord is in this. And as he shares his vision, and says, would you join me? Verse 18 says, so they said in response to him, hearing his vision, hearing of God's faithfulness. They said, verse 18, the end of it, let us rise up and build. And they set their hands to the good work. What a beautiful response. The people's hearts are stirred. Here's more evidence that God is in this because the people have a favorable response. They say, you know what? That sounds like God. Sounds like the hand of God is at work in that. That sounds like a vision from the Lord, something that God is involved in, that God wants to do, and they say, let's do it. And there's this cooperative attitude. There's this support that rally behind this leader of God and this 
vision that he has is, hey, let's rise up and build, and they set their hands to get work. And they said, let's do this. Let's begin to work on what God has put upon your heart for us to do and build those walls. Verse 19, but when Sanballat the Harnite, here they are again, the enemy, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab, notice the enemy opposition grows, you got a third party now, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? Notice, as they're deeply disturbed, they now start to begin to actively oppose in the actions and things that they're doing. They start to ask questions to intimidate, to make them question whether or not this is even something that could be accomplished as they laughed at them and despised them as they heard about their desires to rebuild the wall and to do this work for God, for his glory. It says that what is this thing that you are doing? And you know, sometimes this is how the enemy will work through the voices of people who question the things that we want to do for God. What are you doing? Do you really think that's going to work? Do you really think God's in that? And, and the enemy wants to cause confusion and doubt and intimidation, and even to question at times our motives by false accusations. Will you rebel against the king? They weren't rebelling against the king, but they're being accused that that's what their motive is. And sometimes when we want to do something for God, I've seen over the years, this can be the case. And one of the ways the enemy works as well, where people question our motive and they, in accusatory ways, say things that kind of not only make us doubt maybe what God's wanting us to do, but make us question that our heart is impure. And they cause accusations to be launched against us, which can be hurtful. You know, what, what are you doing? And, and almost like we're doing something that's not of God somehow. But Nehemiah answered verse 20 in conclusion. So I answered them and said, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you, he says, have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. So I love Nehemiah. Again, just a man with some grit, some spiritual determination. He doesn't let opposition stop him. And if you're ever going to do anything for God, you got to learn how to persevere past opposition. You got to have to have sort of the heart of a child that trusts the Lord dependently and you got to kind of have the skin of a rhinoceros that doesn't take personal and over offended by every little challenge and difficulty and opposition. You got to know how to do the long obedience in the same direction and, and not let opposition hinder you. And Nehemiah says, look, I hear what you're saying, but he says, you know what? God's going to bless this because it's something God wants to do. God's going to prosper us. The God of heaven doesn't matter what you're saying to me here as a person on earth. The God of heaven, he says, will prosper us. And we are his servants. And he says there, we will arise and build. We will do this. You may oppose us. You may resist us. But we're going to do this because God's asked us to do this. And God is with us in this. And God's going to bless what we're going to do. What a great heart attitude. We need that perseverance. Hey, don't be discouraged. When God has asked you to do something, opposition will come. But you got to courageously step forward and keep going and trust that if God is indeed in it, that God will bless it. Uh, and again, the Bible tells us no weapon formed against us can prosper. And if God is in something, God himself is going to bring it to pass. 
We'll see next time in chapter 3, the work begins in a beautiful collective effort among God's people, starts to produce something really wonderful as the hand of God gets behind what they're doing.